Well, good morning. Good to see all of you. I come from Denver, bring you greetings from there. Uh, one of the things that's interesting about being uh, from Colorado is that it used to be people would say, oh, Colorado. And the first questions were, so do you ski? Do you snowboard? What about the mountains? Now people are like, Colorado, huh? See, I don't even have to say it, and you all know what I'm talking about. Even in churches, it's not like, so what work are you doing in the city to spread the gospel? It's like, so weed. <laughs> like, oh, thank you. Um, it's wonderful to be with you, because one of my wife and I um, spent yesterday walking around Huntington Beach, and uh, having spent time with Caleb and heard about Mariners, and specifically Mariners Huntington Beach, uh, there, there really is a lot of uh, common heart and common passion and common vision. And, and really that vision is to be people who see our cities become more whole, more healed, more connected to the heart of God. So it's really thrilling for me to be here with you. And, and I really want to talk about that idea of what does it look like to be a church who takes another step, just in one more step, in serving its city really well. You've been talking about, oh, the places you will go. And in my experience, some of the best uh, adventures, some of the best places uh, are those that are unplanned, those that you don't know are going to happen to you, and you end up somewhere that you never thought possible. And this is the story of what happens with Paul. Paul was a fellow who initially, when we meet him in the book of Acts, he's persecuting the church. And then he has this unbelievable conversion experience, and he becomes one who travels throughout the known world so that people will know about Jesus. And the story that we'll look at this morning in one of the earliest recorded evangelistic sermons, one of the earliest sermons that are preaching the gospel, you see Paul go, and it's interesting because he affirms pagan worship and says that what they're doing in their worship is actually worshiping God. Paul doesn't quote any scripture to prove his point, in fact, he quotes pagan poets as evidence of God's work in the world. And then Paul never mentions Jesus by name. And when he does, he only refers to him as a man. He never speaks about forgiveness. He never speaks about heaven or hell or the cross. And yet, it's an evangelistic sermon. So let's see what I'm getting at here in Acts chapter 17. Paul is traveling the world. He's in a city called Thessalonica, which is in modern-day Greece. And while he's there, he gets himself into trouble. If you know anything about Paul, it's that he's always embroiled in controversy somewhere. Paul has this habit of getting people upset. And while he's in Thessalonica, the crowds get stirred up and they want to kill him. And so Paul, under the cover of night, escapes to a city called Berea, and while he's there, the crowds in Thessalonica find out he's there, and they come still wanting to kill him, and eventually, Paul escapes to Athens, and he gets to Athens, and those who brought him there just said, wait here for your traveling companions. Now, if you're anything like me, if there's people who want to try to kill you, not that I'm speaking from experience, but you kind of just lay low. You kind of stay out of sight, not Paul. He's by himself in Athens, and this is where we find him in verse 16. It says this, while Paul was waiting for them, his traveling companions in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Now, this is the first question. You have five questions on an outline there. The first question is, do we get angry at others or do we ache with others? 
Some of the English translations say that Paul was angered when he saw the idols. How many times have you seen the people of God? How many times have you seen people in our world, Christians, who get angry at those outside the church? Maybe we see a behavior that to us is repulsive or repugnant, and it's this like, oh, you shouldn't do that, and kind of judging and condemning and pointing the finger. The word here of Paul being distressed means he ate. He was heartbroken. He saw what was going on and thought, man, I'm watching people being crushed beneath the indignity of sin. Paul understood that all men and all women are created in the image and likeness of the Almighty God. And anytime we give ourselves over to anything less than that, it should cause us to ache. Do we get angry or do we ache? Continuing in verse 17, it says this, So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. The word reasoned is the word from which we take the, our word dialogue, which means two words. So it means this, Paul would speak and then he would listen. And we would do well to consider this because we live in a world today where we are not good at listening. Let me repeat that. We live in a world today where we're not good at listening. There's some guy right there like, what do you, what do you say? I didn't. Um, we want to be heard. It's, it's, it's called the comment section, Right? You can post something on Facebook that's like the most innocent thing ever. Like, isn't this cat cute? And then people are like, no, I hate cats. So they're like the spawn of the devil. And it just gets, everything's a controversy. Somehow, we just want to be heard. Paul listens. He reasons. He speaks. And he allows them to respond. And he, through that, he learns which is the second question. Are we those who truly listen to others or are we just waiting for our turn to talk? Paul goes into a place that he knows nothing about, walks around, begins reasoning. He aches for them. Continuing in verse 18, it says this, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Some of you have been asking that question since I got up here uh, about me. Um, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who live there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Now, we hear those two things about the babbler and advocating foreign gods, and it seems pretty innocent, maybe a little bit insulting. But we said earlier, Paul always gets himself into trouble. There was a philosopher of some note in the Greek world. His name was Socrates. Some of you who are Bill and Ted's fans are like, I thought it was Socrates. Um, Socrates. Socrates was given a death sentence in which he had to drink a mixture of poison because Socrates was an atheist. The charge against him was this. He advocates foreign gods, meaning 
Socrates began teaching young people, hey, by the way, all these gods that the state says exist are not the only gods. There's more. And so these gods, well, it's just what the state is telling you to believe. So they said, you're advocating foreign gods. Socrates was accused of that, and then he was found guilty and given a death sentence. So when they say to Paul, you seem to be advocating foreign gods, this is actually a rather steep charge. So they bring him to the Areopagus, which is a clearinghouse of ideas for philosophy and religion and politics. And historically, it was a place where they would rule whether or not a teaching was okay by the state or whether it would be condemned. And Paul goes to this place by himself, this center of thought for the city of Athens. And he begins to speak to them. And in verse 20, or verse 22, it says this, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, you are going to hell because you do not believe in Jesus. No, not at all. No sandwich board, no bullhorn, right? Paul says, people of Athens, I see in every way you are very religious. Like, oh, thanks, right? Everyone's ready for an argument. They're like, oh, yeah, we are. Thank you, right? I mean, just... What he's saying is, you're really devoted. You're serious about this God business. And then he continues, he says this, For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. He just stands up and says, hey, you're religious. You're devoted. You're serious. You have respect for the gods. And it would have been obvious for any of us walking around making a careful observation because historians tell us that in the Athens or the marketplace of Athens alone, there were over 3,000 idols and altars to the gods. The people of Athens were very serious about their faith, very serious about their religion, and so serious that they had thousands of gods, and just in case they missed one, they had an unknown god. Because their attitude was this, you, should, you better keep the gods happy. Because if the gods are happy, then life is good. If the gods are angry, life is bad. And, and what's interesting about this is that what they would do is, they, if they had a really good year financially, or they had a really good year agriculturally, they would say, well, thanks be to the gods. And then they would start thinking, well, what did we do this year that made the gods so happy? And whatever it is that we did, we better keep doing that because if we do less than that, then the gods won't be happy and we won't have a good year next year. And so let's make sure we just keep heaping on and heaping on and heaping on all these things that we're doing to keep the gods happy. And then likewise, if they had a bad year, if there was famine or if they, they went bankrupt, it was, well, what did we do to anger the gods? And whatever we did, we better make sure that we don't do that again because if we do it again... We ought to know better, and the punishment will be worse next time. I mean, this is the ultimate kind of primitive religion. What would it be like to have lived that way in the city of Athens? Maybe I should ask, what is it like to live that way? When was the last time you heard someone talk about God striking them dead? A few months ago in our church, Denver Community Church, uh, after our services, this guy came up to me, and he looked like someone who was like in the witness protection program. 
Not that I've ever known if I've met someone in the witness protection program, but I can imagine this is what they would be like. He was like weirded out. He was kind of like, you know, doing the thing where he like looks around, like people are looking for him, and he's like, hey, I've never, I've never really talked to a pastor before. And I'm like, oh, well, nice, nice to meet you. I mean, I, first time in my life felt intimidating, all five, nine of me. And uh, he's like, yeah, man, I, like, this is my first time ever in church, but I, I'm, I, I just want to say, hey, I'm pretty sure God's going to strike me dead. And I'm like, Why? And he's like, oh, dude. So he starts telling me about his life. And there's some details that you're like, wow, hmm, that's, that's bold, among other things. And so I just kept saying to him, well, God's not going to strike you dead for that. God's not, no, you're fine. You're okay. Like, you know, welcome. And say, hey, man, I really, really just want you to know you are welcome here. Like, there's no, no one's been stricken dead yet. Um, <laughs> hope you come back. As he's leaving, by the way, in my head, I'm like, oh, God, please don't let him get into a bad car accident on the way out. <laughs> It would just ruin everything I just tried to affirm. But we live that way. Maybe not to that extreme. But this idea that somehow God's just, God's kind of after us. I have a friend, uh, he and I were, have, a few of us were hanging out. He's also a pastor. And we were just talking about ministry and life. And, and my friend said, talked about like places where he would want to be a pastor. And then said, I'll tell you where I would never go. I would never go to the southeastern part of the United States. Like this deep south. Now, for those of you who are here and you're offended by that, please um, send an email to Caleb, and he'll, he'd love to communicate with you about that. But like, it just wasn't his thing. He just couldn't connect to that culture. And someone else said, well, you better be careful or God will send you there. And I, was, I, I thought, really? Really? Like, God is up in heaven, and he's like, what? Hey, guys, did you hear that? We are, we are so moving into the South. Yeah, tell, tell me what you will and won't do, right? But this person was serious. I'm like, is this how God works? Like he just, when we do something, he just responds in some sort of anger or some, what about the other way? Eight years ago, my wife and I, we lived in Michigan. We moved to Denver so that I could become the pastor of Denver Community Church. And when we were selling our house, Michigan was like at the bottom of the country in the real estate market. Houses were staying on the market for 18 months plus, selling for 100000 less than people listed it at. And we put our house on the market, and six weeks later, it sold for what we asked for it, which was miraculous. And people began saying, you know why that happened, right? God, God was pleased that you moved. I'm like, okay, but I have friends who moved across the country, and their house has sat for sale. So was God not happy that they moved? It's interesting the way that we think about how we somehow appease or anger God. It's actually interesting. It makes God very impotent, doesn't it? It makes God very weak because really God is only moved by what we do. It puts us in the, in the driver's seat and makes us in control. Maybe that's why we love this kind of religion because we're the ones who can sway God. This is the way the people lived in Athens, and it's the way so many people still live today. It brings us to the third question. How much life and time and energy do we put forward trying to appease God, and how much anxiety do we hold wondering if God is angry with us? The biblical writers tell us that there is sorrow in God's anger. God's first response to human sin is sorrow in Genesis chapter 6. His heart is broken over what he sees. The biblical writers say, God's anger will last a little while, but his love endures forever. God's ultimate response to human brokenness and sin, God's ultimate response to all of the violence that we've done to one another is the cross. 
Jesus took all of that anger and, and wrath upon himself. God never does anything to anyone he hasn't first done to himself. And Paul says, hey, listen, I see that you're really religious. And you know what? You're locked into the system. Here's your bad news. Your bad news is you think the gods are out to get you. So much so that in your own paranoia, you have an altar to the unknown God. But then he says something curious. And this God that you're ignorant of, this God that you're worshiping, I'm going to make him known to you. Paul doesn't say, hey, you're way off on the unknown God thing, so let's just recalibrate the whole... No, he says, you're already worshiping God. You just don't know it yet. Isn't that fascinating? Like, Paul is actually affirming what they're doing. This altar is good. And I wonder how many of us are willing to find God, are willing to see God in unexpected places, even outside of our own faith tradition. How many of us believe that God is, in fact, as the poet Gerard Manley Hopkins said, playing in 10,000 places? Paul says, he's right here. You just, you just don't know who it is. So let me make him known to you. Let me tell you about him. See, we're really good at drawing boundaries and drawing borders and drawing lines and in and out and thinking in those categories. And what's interesting is I've never met a Christian who loves to draw boundaries who doesn't draw him or herself smack in the middle of it. As though like, well, God works in this way and anything in any direction from me is not as good as the way that God works here. We draw boundaries around grace and we place ourselves in the middle and we forget grace doesn't have boundaries. We draw boundaries around God's love and say, put ourselves in the middle and we forget that Jesus in his love blew up every boundary that existed in his day. And Paul says, no, he's, he's already here. You're already worshiping him. Let me make him known to you. And then Paul jumps into making that God known. He says this in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he gives, himself, gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Think about that. You, you are in a religious world that says... You're supposed to have all these things together so the gods are happy. And Paul says, no, let me tell you about this God. He doesn't need your temples. He doesn't need all the things you can do. As a matter of fact, this God gives you everything you have that you consider good. This God sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Stop trying so hard. Stop worrying so much. There's this God who gives you life and breath and everything Else. From one man, verse 26, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. God did this so they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. Let's, let's take a vote. You ever heard the phrase, oh, they're far from God? Have we heard this? Yes? Okay. I say we strike that from the Christian vocabulary. Because you might feel like you're far from God. Paul says God's not far from you. So can we agree on that? Yes. Come on, we need a resounding. Yes. Yeah, thank you. I was looking for a harumph, but that'll do. <laughs> so Paul says he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live, move, and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Paul, by the way, calls these poets in the book of Titus prophets. Prophets in the Jewish tradition from which Paul comes are those who speak words of God. 
Paul says, hey, by the way, if you want proof that this is true, listen to your own poets. They know what's going on. Verse 29, therefore, since we are God's offspring, he says, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Did you notice he says Jesus is the man that God appointed? He says, and because of this, you should repent. Literally change your mind. Change the way that you think. Think differently about this whole God, divine worship concept. Let's review. Paul respects their religiosity and their devotion. Paul affirms their pagan worship and says, you're worshiping God, you just don't know it yet. Paul quotes not scripture, but their own poets as evidence of God working in the world. When Paul refers to Jesus, it is not by name, and he only calls him a man. And Paul never mentions the cross or heaven or hell. And yet we call this a gospel message. If I were to say to you, I want you to go down Main Street, Huntington Beach, later today and over the next few days, and I want you to walk around and I want you just to make careful observation of everything that you see down there and go down during all hours of the day, not just during family-friendly hours. I was right, aren't I? I said to my wife last night, this place blows up at night, I bet you. It does. Some of you are like, oh, you didn't see me. <laughs> um, and you, what you're going to do is you're going to put together a sermon, but you can't use scripture, you can't mention Jesus by name, and you have to share the good news of who Jesus is. Like All of a sudden, it's like, oh, wow, that, mm, that gets a little more difficult, doesn't it? You see, in some ways, we would have, in our, in our very proper Christian American 21st century minds, we might have some trouble if someone today did something like this and called it the gospel. But Paul does it, and I think we, we need to learn from this, because what Paul is doing, and what you see Paul doing, is Paul is going to where they are and beginning in that place. They would not have understood anything about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They would not have understood anything about the people of Israel. They would not have understood all of the stories that we hold to, that we learned in Sunday school. They knew the unknown God. They knew all the gods in the pantheon of the Roman and Greek tradition. Paul starts where they are. They knew their poets. You see, so often the gospel has become an answer to a question no one is asking, and there's nothing more boring than an answer to a question that hasn't been asked. Paul knows the questions they're asking. He knows their bad news, and he goes to where they are. I have a picture I want to show you. It's a map of a mall. Now, how many of you are like me, where when you have to go to the mall, it's like getting really bad news, and so you go in and out as quickly as possible, and that's central to your mission? Yes. So when I go to a mall, I know exactly where to park. There's a mall in Denver called the Cherry Creek Mall. I know exactly where to park. That's the closest to the doors. I know exactly where the map is, and I know how to read the information thing. And I walk right in, and I read it. I find the store. I go there, and I'm out. And on the way there, I always seem to walk past Sephora. Have you ever... 
And like whenever I walk past and breathe in, my lungs are like, dear God, what is this poison, right? I mean, like the sulfur of hell has nothing on Sephora. That place, I don't get it. People that work there have no nostril hair. It's unreal. Nonetheless, so when you walk into the mall, though, and you want to know where you're going, what do you have to know first to figure out where you're going? Where you're at. So you find the what? The red dot that says you are here. It reduces you to a red dot. Let's just talk about that. Because here's the, here's the reality. If you don't know where you are, you'll have no idea how to get where you need to go. If I were to say to you, and you had no idea where you were in the country, go to New York. You have a 50-50 shot of making it to New York or drowning. Because <laughs> if you head due west, you're going to start swimming and be like, dude, he said it's, this, it's out there somewhere, right? And then you're going to get eaten by an aggressive eight-year-old juvenile great white shark, which I heard are here in Huntington Beach, apparently. <laughs> Nonetheless, like, so you need to know where, where you're going. But what's interesting to me in my experience is so oftentimes the church, the people of God, Christians, we start talking about the good news of Jesus and we never give people the red dot. We never say, oh, I understand where you are. Or we just presume, oh, no, you must be where I am. Or even worse, why don't you come to where I am so you can understand like, where we're going with this whole thing. The direction of God is always toward humanity. We notice this from the beginning. Adam sins, God comes to the garden. End of the story. John sees a vision of God coming down to earth. Just those two stories alone, being that the first and last story of the Bible, should tell us we should always go in that direction. This is what Paul does. He goes to Athens and goes, let's start where you are. And it's interesting, in the New Testament, you see the New Testament writers doing this over and over with the good news. They're using all kinds of images and pictures and stories and ideas from the marketplace, from business, from slavery to oppression to war to military. They're using imagery from the uh, world of Israel. They're using imagery from the world of Rome just so people can begin to get an idea of what they're talking about. And the New Testament never gives one group privilege over another. It's concerned with where people are and bringing them another step forward toward the God who is love, who wants to redeem them. We have to begin with where people are. You are here, the red dot. Have that image in your mind as you leave. Where are people? I talked with this couple after the 830 service, and they were like, our daughter, we're really concerned about her. And she moved up to LA, and we've been in all kinds of conversations with her. And we just realized, we're going to L.A. We're going to where she is. And I said, my entire trip out here is worth it. Go to where they are. This is what Paul does. So that people can hear the good news, and he meets them by going to where they are in their bad news. Their bad news, the gods are out to get you. Paul's good news, no, this God gives you life and breath and everything else. And this is so important to go to where people are because we all have bad news. Everyone does. It might just be low-lying insecurity. It might be fear about what's next. It might be that you're here this morning and your marriage is hanging on by a thread. It might be that you just got a phone call from a loved one and they told you that they had a terminal diagnosis. It might be that you moved out to California with all kinds of hopes and dreams about what your life would be like, and it's just not adding up. And when your friends call and say, how's it going, you continue to lie and say, great. We all have bad news. And until we're willing to listen 
to make careful observation and to go to where people are, we may not know their bad news and we'll just be answering a question they've never asked. I have a friend who traveled to India and he spent time with an Indian pastor there. And this pastor told this unbelievable story about when a group of Americans traveled to see him. And when they were there, they encountered the, the people group that this pastor works with called the Dalits. Now, the Dalits are on the bottom of the Hindu caste system. They're like the untouchables. They're not human. Everyone ignores them. You don't associate with them. And so that's who he serves. And he told my friend, yeah, this group of people came, and they, they were heartbroken because they saw children dying. And not dying as like a, they were sick. They literally saw children pass, passing from life to death. And they noticed that these children would then be wrapped up for burial but never buried because this group of people were routinely cleaned out of wherever they had settled down by the police and by the authorities and, and they didn't have time to bury their children. And so they were heartbroken over what they saw and they said, man, kids are dying. We need a hospital. And so they went back to the U.S., told their church what was happening and they began to raise money for a hospital. This Indian pastor thought, no, I'm going to go talk to the elders of this group and ask them what they need. So he went to them and said, I see that your children are dying. I see that you're in a difficult spot. What do you need? And they said, a mailbox. He's like, no, you don't. They said, no, we need a mailbox. He said, why do you need a mailbox? They said, well, if we get a mailbox, it means that we have a zip code. And if we have a zip code, it means that that was given to us by the government. And if the government gives us a zip code... It means that we're people. And if we're people, and that's, the government gives that to us, it means that we can get the medical treatment that we need. It means that we can tap into education and all of the resources that our government gives to everything else. We need a mailbox. And he said, we'll get you a mailbox. Now, thinking as good Americans, you go, oh, that's great. Just go down and fill out a few forms at the uh, post office. In 30 days, and after a lot of administrative fees, which are always mysteriously expensive, we'll get the mailbox. But this is not what happened. He went down and said, we need a mailbox. And they said, not for them. And they began to fight for over two years. At, at times, they were even beaten and threatened because of their association with the Dalit people. Meanwhile, back in the United States, the church enthusiastically and quickly raised the money, and they began construction of a hospital adjacent to the neighborhood where they saw all of these people dying thinking at last we won't have to see kids die anymore. The pastor in his church, after two years of struggle, eventually got to the place where they got a zip code. And so they go and they buy a mailbox and they bring it to the elders and they said, we got your zip code. And there's like this huge celebration and, and the pastor finally said to them, can I, can I tell you why we've done this? And he said, oh, we know why you've done this. And he said, you do? He said, yeah. We know that you follow Jesus, and we know that he and your beliefs are what led you to do this. And he's like, yeah. And they're like, and because of that, we have decided to become Christians. Our entire tribe will become Christians. And he's like, wait, how do, like, how do you tell everyone they're going to become Christians? They're like, because we're the elders of the tribe. We're all Christians! <laughs> and everyone's like, all right, you know, like... And they celebrate the mailbox. Meanwhile, the church opens the doors of the hospitals with enthusiasm. And no one shows up. 
because they have a mailbox. And the difference is one listened. One learned the bad news. And the others presumed they knew exactly what was going on. See, we all have bad news. And the question for us is, uh, do we know the bad news of others or are we just answering questions no one is asking? Are we willing to go to where people are so that we can learn what their bad news is, so that we can help them take a step from the place where they are? Or are we assuming that we already know where they are? Are we assuming that we just know what they need next? You see, one of the questions I'm asked most often as a pastor is, I don't know what, how to share my faith. I don't know what to say. But maybe a better question is, what should we do? I don't know how to share my faith. What should I do? And the good news for people's bad news is exactly what we see Paul point out. That this God isn't angry. This God is not far from any one of us. That if we reach out for him, we will find him. So may you be those who learn where people are, who listen well enough to know the bad news and have the courage to perform and proclaim the good news of Jesus in this city. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I thank you for my brothers and sisters. I thank you that all those separated by hundreds of miles, you bring us together through your spirit, through the heart, through the desire to see our cities know you more. Father, if there's a brother or a sister seated here this morning that feels like they're far from God, would you, would you touch them? Would you reach them? Would you embrace them in such a way where they're reminded this morning while they might feel far from you, you are not far from them. Father, for my brothers and sisters here this morning who see pain and sorrow and struggle and anxiety and worry and fear in the hearts of their coworkers and their families and their friends and their neighbors, God, would you, would you give them through your spirit this sense of what they should say? Would you give them the discipline of listening would you give them the courage to go places they might not go? Would you give them the eyes to see where you're already at work so that they would have the joy of performing and proclaiming your good news to the bad news of others? We, we commit ourselves to your work in this world this morning, and we do so in the strong name of Jesus and all the brothers and sisters said.